to the From Jacket podcast. From Sell Jackets, we don't talk that much about jackets. We talk about uh, life and stuff. Now, I do this introduction again with the guest, Jim Edmondson, so I don't think there's any need to do it. I just like to say sorry again, because I do that in a second, for having such a long hiatus. That's entirely due to my own tardiness and being very busy with stuff and selling jackets, which is boring. I don't have a better excuse than that. Um, This is a really good one about business and good business and about being an entrepreneur and about how it isn't as glamorous as you think and some really interesting opinions. And it is also recorded in a Pilates studio at Babington House, which is a silly place to have recorded it in because it's very echoey. But I'm hoping that our sound engineer, David, will have sorted that out. Okay, let's crack on. Thanks, bye. Hello and welcome to the first From Jacket podcast for ages, because I've been really busy, which is a crap excuse. Um, And we are all about making jackets for curious minds. And so we're curious about life and looking at things in a bit more detail, with a bit more substance. Uh, And that can be in a silly way or a very serious way. And the chap I'm sat next to in quite a strange way today (laughs) is Jim Edmondson. Uh, Jim and I are sat on those sort of rollers for you to um, roll out your muscles and yoga mats in Babington House. So um, I feel like we're being uh, dead trendy. <laughs> I, I, yes, I think that's probably a good way of looking at it. Um, so, uh, Jim, if I may, I would introduce you as a tech entrepreneur who has done very well and is now an investor and multiple entrepreneur and resident of Somerset. Would that may be accurate? Uh, well, it's, that sounds like a very, uh, it, it's a very grandiose uh, introduction. I think that there's probably a lot more failings along the way that I've experienced, but uh, yes, and I think um, the only difference is I'm a resident of Dorset. Are you? Yeah, I live, across, I live, I live across the border. So when I sent you a jacket, <laughs> so the reason that we hooked up is because you ordered a, a from Harrington Race jacket, uh, which you're wearing today, very kindly. Um, and you, uh, yeah, I thought you lived in Somerset, because I'm sure I sent it to Somerset. I'm clearly just bonkers, so don't worry. Uh, I <laughs> or, you, or you just have 50 houses. It's an you know, incredibly exciting day, actually. I think I was just saying to you before we started recording. But to meet somebody who has created something you think is really beautiful and kind of meets all the requirements that you're looking for in life really is a really special thing. And so I was racing back on the train back from London and I got back into uh, Gillingham and then the 45 minute drive here. And it was one of those mornings where you wake up and think, yeah, it's really exciting. Because when I, when I saw what you created with, now how do you pronounce it? I say, I say from. Is that right? Yeah, from, yeah. So when I, when I came across that, I came across it because a friend of mine, Mark Koskel, was wearing one of your jackets. Which is where the intro comes from because uh, Anna Koskel was a podcastee and she's married to Mark who has a jacket who then, and then you saw the jacket. Sorry, you were saying that. So. And that's right. And I saw the jacket and um, Mark and Anna are always doing these rather wonderful things like making wooden surfboards and wooden canoes. And I saw the jacket and then I looked it up and I was like, that's a really cool company. And it, it, to me, seemed like the essence of Patagonia for a new generation 
And it was coming out of something where there is, in my view, and the reason I'm sure we'll get onto different aspects of our lives at the moment, but there's just far too much consumerism around growth. And the idea that somebody else has come out with a brand that is purely about making something that lasts, making something that is beautiful, really struck a chord with me. Mm. And so then I wrote to her, I was like, I've got to get one of these jackets. And, and now, I, you know, I don't take it off. It's now being a bit hot, so I have to take it off. But it's been my, it's my go-to piece now. I wear it everywhere. Cool. And so that's, yeah, that's, how, that's how we met. So um, let's dive in to this. Is, so you're, you're a, an entrepreneur who's done very well. That's a very wide meaning to that. Um, and uh, I'm an entrepreneur who hasn't. I failed, and of course, I think you know there's lots of definitions of failure, and failure is part of the process of getting better at what we're doing. That's fine. I'm not embarrassed about that, and I'm sure you've had failings along the way as well. Because just you can't not have <laughs> failure. But um, you've done very well. But but you talk about growth kind of being the enemy. That's quite a controversial thing to say. You're you're in the world of you know investment and finance and and being an entrepreneur because you've got to have growth to have a company? Or do you mean sort of avaricious, unnecessary growth? Well, I think that when I, yeah, when I look at that, it's, it's about the fact that the main metric that we look at for how well a country is doing is general GDP. And all we look at is really, in terms of what we read in the papers, what politicians talk about, is one metric, which is, in economics, is uh, growth. When you do your first module of economics and you're looking at it, they all turn around and say, there are all these other pieces. We've got to put them to one side to kind of simplify the noise. And the reality is, is that for the last 20, 30, 40 years, our economy's been built upon this this metric of growth. How well is the country growing? And that has fed uh, stock markets, it's fed how we perceive things, and it's fed this appetite for marketing, advertising, to feed us into our psyche that we need more things, so we buy more things, and we're using the resources in the world at a rate which is not sustainable. Hmm. And so, yes, it is a juxtaposition because I am now in finance. My, my main role is running a venture capital fund, but we're trying to do it with a slight difference in that we're not going out to fund companies just to grow capital. Mm-hmm. We believe there's an inflection point between the fact that we are running out of resources, so new things need to be created, and there is a there is a potential market in that, but a market like very similar to your jackets that can have longevity. Mm-hmm. It's not buying a jacket for one season and then it goes and then you buy another one. It's going, no, this jacket is going to be the jacket I'm going to be wearing for the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. And that's the same thing we're trying to do with our fund. We're trying to look at technologies that are for long-term sustainability. So it's not a fund where we're investing today, we've got a five-year metric, and then we're going to get out again with as much money as possible. We're saying, how do we actually look at companies in a different way to say, how do we support you for the growth over the next 200 years? And there isn't many funds that have done that previously. No, and, and the model I'm used to is we need to get, you know, a 10 times return. We put in half a million quid, we need five million quid back, we need to do that in three to five years. That means massive growth. And... And what happens, what seems to happen, I'm not an economist by any means, is that that is extrapolated across industries. Yeah. Is this, it, log, by logic, you can't have constant growth. It means that clearly you have to be losers. And I, I do believe in a sort of 
Darwinism to do with businesses. And it happened to me is that if you're not good enough, and in, for our, in our case, we hadn't nailed our production finance down, and that's why my previous company, Bulkline, closed, and ha- that's why I changed it from, but you get found out. And that's necessary. I think the, the bad companies need to be stripped away. Even if they travel really hard, you know, if you, if you don't nail it, then it's kind of tough, really, isn't it? Uh, even though it's painful. But, but the great companies, I, I've never understood why great companies have to grow harder and faster and bigger and, um, and, and just sort of attack. What ends up happening is actually not just that you attack other companies, but they att- essentially attacking resources because if you have to buy, you know, a jacket from X brand every three months, you know, um, then then you're using an enormous amount of resources. I haven't put that very well. Basically, I'm thinking about fast fashion. My obsession with jackets, yeah. and long, jackets and longevity, is that I don't like fashion because I don't like things that without permanence, and not that I don't like style. I'm always trying to put Fran across as a stylish. Uh, brand and I love creativity but what I hate is the thought of wearing something once it really offends me it always has I, I grew up without money and you know please mum can I go and buy a pair of shoes and when I had them I had them and I used them until they broke and that's something I've grown up with and so I want the same thing things that I make and it really really gets to my nerves if something either isn't fashionable and I can't wear it because it's not right people would judge me for it uh, which I probably don't care about at 45 now anyway. Um, or, uh, or that it simply doesn't last, which is more common. A beautiful thing that simply doesn't work. And, and for me, that's just a personal thing. I, I like things that work and last. I just prefer things that actually feel solid and work right. But also, you know, people say, what is your environmental policy? And I mean, my policy is simply that it's going to stick around. And that if you want a jacket that's going to do a job, it does a lot of jobs, so you don't need a lot of different jackets, and you're still going to have it in five, ten years' time. And I think that is what drew me to your brand, because what you've just said in uh, just around jackets or fast fashion is exactly the view, the thesis behind the whole of our fund. Right. The fact that we believe that business is a great crucible for actually focusing innovation. Mm. It's not soft money. If you're investing in something, you've got to be true to that. You've got accountability. So I do believe in business actually being something to keep things accountable. And that allows you to focus on to going forward. But I also believe in sustainability. And I mean sustainability in, in the fact that something is sustained for a long time, not just the environmental way we look at it now, but it, it, which is equally important. But the, the thought process of longevity and so if you think about what you're saying about fast fashion, but you put that across the whole of uh, investment, you can start to look at and think, well, why do we need to change our car every five years? Mm. Why do we need to do this? And it's because of this voracious appetite we now have, which is settled from the fashion media, uh, all these kind of influences and everything to, to focus us to say, well, we, we're not fashionable anymore, we need to change. Mm. And this has grown this amazing consumer environment where we've got to be trying everything all the time. And I think we have reached this amazing virtual point where we think by, 20, um, by 2050, we'll have 5 billion people connected. And that little thing you hold in your hand, which some people think is really evil, is amazing. The voice we now have as a, as a global voice mm-hmm. is getting more and more powerful. We start to see these, you know, the global youth generation coming out. We've got more people now 
than we ever had done before between the ages of 13 and 30 that are really starting to make a massive stance and saying, look, you, we can't leave the planet the way it's going to be left. Mm. There won't be anything for our children. And so that's where we've come from. And then when I was looking at your brand, those are all the points that kind of ticked in my mind too. And it was interesting because when we were chatting on the phone, we were also talking about mind and wellness. And I believe all of those things are interlinked. If you have a company which is just about, you know, huge appetite for growth, there are people who are going to suffer, not just in terms of resources in the planet, but people are going to mentally suffer too. Are you getting enough time with your kids? Are you getting enough time with your partner? Are you, is your life actually in balance? And that whole thing about life balance is so cliched now. But it's, it's true. We're, we're, not, we're not living like human beings should live. We're living in this industrial world, which is like, we own you from nine to five. Every minute that you're in the office, we own you for that time. And I think we're, we're, we're meeting this amazing point where lots of people are looking and going, no, that's not right. That's just, it's just not right anymore. Yeah. And what's interesting is, we again, this is something we talked about. We should go across again. It's the entrepreneurial experience. But what my entrepreneurial experience with Volpine ended with was a mental breakdown. And what that did was it, it forced me to strip away a load of shit in my life and to reassess. And basically, the thing in front of my nose was I was in a lot of mental anguish and that I was with my family and that was uh, a good thing for me. And so, so I, I stripped away all the, all the, what now a lot of it looks like crap in my life. I went, right, I need to eat and sleep properly. I need to exercise. I need to start thinking the right way and having space to digest what's happened and about the future and all this kind of stuff. And actually, I realized that what I start, stopped doing, and this is a point of tension for me with what I do, because I'm a marketeer as well, is I disengaged from social media and felt a lot better for that. And I disengaged from marketing as a whole. I really wasn't a consumer. I couldn't afford to be a consumer. And actually, I realise now that despite my depression, I was actually much, much happier. I was much more content. I think the word is content. And contentment, rather, I think, as humans, we should be aiming for contentment rather than happiness, because happiness is is extremely hard. You can't, you can't be happy all the time. You can have bursts of happiness, I believe. But anyway, so, so suddenly I thought, oh, okay, so actually my life is extremely different and better probably for it, even though, shit, I can't pay the bills. And, but that doesn't, even though, I, it's, it's, I was trying to make sense of it. And what I started to make sense of was I have this ambition and I feel frustrated by not being able to create a company and not using the skills that I've developed but I don't want to do it in the same way. So when I do it again, I need to balance it with this real life I've discovered underneath the surface of all this entrepreneurialism. My family, exercise, creativity, culture, etc. And I'm actually doing that further and further down the line to greater and greater sort of nth degree. In fact, it's the point now where we're selling our, you know, mid-sized family home to go for a small home simply to get rid of all our debt and, and so that we can live without the spectre, because debt is also a, sub, a, a, a product of growth. Yes. And, and, and actually, if we look at the sort of political situation at the moment and the instability in the world, which also is, I think, overwrought because of the media, etc. I don't think it's as bad as it looks, and that's another subject, but is just think, well, fuck it, maybe we can get rid of our debt by just having a little house. And it doesn't mean that we'll be able to do all the things we could do or store all the things we have. And, you know, I'll have to get rid of my collection of face magazines and all this stuff. But um, does it matter? 
And that's the question I've been asking myself for the last two years. Right. Does it matter? Does it matter that my car has scratches down the side? Does it matter that I can't get hold of the latest copy of whatever comic book I'm into? No. Does it matter that I spend time with my kids? Yes. So I think there's always, you know, when we talk about what you're, you know, what you're saying is, and I think people have heard this a lot in the media at the moment, is when, when, when somebody is on their deathbed, do they regret not having kept all the copies of Facebook, <laughs> which they never even look back through anyway? They, yeah, exactly. Once a year, they might have flicked through a couple of them. You know, and I've got the same thing. I've got these beautiful copies of Surface Journal, but they just live on a shelf. They don't actually do anything. And when I look back, and I actually look back at this last year, my happiest moments have been doing things with my children and doing things with people that I love and I've spent time with. And you think about that, it's actually about fulfillment. And I think this is the same thing for, for the whole planet, is that people are starting to realise now that it's about fulfillment. We went through the 80s and we went through that whole thing of, you know, um, the Wolf of Wall Street. And we've kind of, we, feels, feels like we've kind of grown out of that, but I don't think we have as a complete society. There is still this thing of, you know, eating crap food and, and all those, those bits you just talked about for yourself. You went through this, this amazing shift in your life. You realised that actually there was bits of it that weren't making you very happy, even though you felt depressed. But what you're talking about, I think, is actually fulfilment, right? You're actually getting to that point where you go, oh, I'm actually getting enough sleep and I'm eating food, which is good for me. And if you look at that on a macro scale, I think that's the same as the planet. It, it's really hard to give up sugar. It's really hard to give up those things and, and cheap food and, and food which, you know, 99p burgers and stuff. But the reality is, it's not brilliant for you. And it's not brilliant for the planet either. And actually, if we start eating a plant-based diet and moving on, it's good for you. You feel good. You don't feel crap the next day. So you feel more fulfilled. You're better with your kids. You're better with your friends. And everybody, it, it's all interlinked. It's not just individuals as islands, and it's not just a planet just by itself. And if we stop you know, using plastic bags, we'll stop doing this. Everything is interconnected. Mm. And I do have this belief that if we actually all start eating better, if we all start having jobs that where we're feeling fulfilled, and we're not just doing it so we can buy the bigger house and so we can have the bigger car, so that our mates down the pub think we're actually a bit better than we are, and we stop living in our egos, and we start actually living with ourselves in self-awareness, present for being now, <clears throat> the world would actually be able to function in a much more uh, sustainable way. Mm. And that's what a lot of these kids are saying. A lot of these kids are gathering in the streets of major cities around the world. That's what they're saying. They're saying, look, we, we don't want the world that you guys want. And there's companies out there like Rolls-Royce who are, they are, they are going through a crisis because they build these cars that use a huge amount of resource and, and, and they're an amazing piece of engineering feat. I'm not taking anything away from the brand, but they're really worried. They're worried as a brand, they're really worried because they don't connect with Generation Z. And it's becoming embarrassing to show that kind of wealth, I think, as well. Yeah, for, and, and so these younger generation, they're thinking, well, when that next generation of millionaires come up, they're not going to want to buy our car because what they want to buy is actually something which is more sustainable. Mm. And, and it, is a, it isn't a hockey stick. We're not, the whole world isn't going to change tomorrow. And we've got some amazing elders like Bill Gates, who is doing, you know, giving 50% of his wealth away mm. uh, and, and trying to get other people to do that. So there are people leading that charge. But I think as a whole, when I, you know, when I sit on the tube and I watch people, they just don't care. Yeah. They just, they're still about 
living their life and they still want this life they believe is out there, which I think actually segues quite nicely to the point you're making about being an entrepreneur, that everybody thinks it's this like amazing utopia, which is not. It's you're on an island, you feel totally alone, it's scary as hell, there's no safety net, and it, it isn't for everybody, it just at the moment is massively in vogue. It's hugely, hugely in vogue. And there's some amazing people out there talking about it for the right reasons, like Gary Vee and these kind of guys. But it isn't for everyone. And it is really scary. And some people are happier just being paid a salary. What I found when I started consulting um, almost two years ago was that I was coming across entrepreneurs. It was almost universal that the founders I talked to, I generally deal with startups, were, were... really fundamentally fucked up. I don't mean strange people, as in their lives were not remotely balanced. They were all, as I have done, working incredibly long hours and probably had dysfunctional relationships uh, with people close to them or didn't have relationships and were scared out of their minds that their company was going to go bust any time now. Right. Which is another experience of having a business that most people don't realise outside it is you're, you're constantly living in fear. Um, and, and But you have this mythology around entrepreneurs because you look at the unicorn, you know, the Jeff Bezos of this world, who would have struggled to get there, but now he's got this enormous amount of money. And uh, although I believe he did borrow 300 grand from his parents, so it wasn't that much of a struggle. He is not the norm. That is an incredibly, as a lottery ticket, it's a tiny, tiny fraction of people who actually get to that point. Most businesses go bust, and now I understand why. It's really fucking hard. If it wasn't hard, everyone would be an entrepreneur. And being an entrepreneur is not a lifestyle. You know, I I have met entrepreneurs who tell you they're an entrepreneur because they like to be an entrepreneur, but they think entrepreneur is basically going to parties and hanging out with cool people, and it's almost like being a pop star. And it's not. For me, it's about risk and... And that risk is personal as well as financial, but you don't need to make it a, a ludicrous risk. And that's obviously what I've tried to do with Fran. Yeah, and I think that, <clears throat> that there's people who are willing to risk it all. Um, and I risk too much, and I got smacked in the face for it, and so you know, learnt my lesson. Yeah, I think I think when you look at that, I think that there, there's varying degrees of it, isn't there? There's varying degrees of how extreme people are, but the, the reality you're talking about it is that, especially in that startup phase, <clears throat> sorry, especially in that startup phase, you're, you're very much stuck in that bit where you're like, where is the next bit of revenue coming from? Yeah. And it's very hard not to actually sell out on your principles. So you start out with this great vision, you go, yeah, why isn't everybody just going to buy into this? Because it's my passion and surely everybody's going to feel exactly the same way. Well, you know, the reality is they don't. Most of the world, you know, you're, you're a minority. Most of the world doesn't see the same way you do. And something I, when I'm talking to people, I say, why should anyone give a shit about your product? And it's not because I'm trying to say nobody cares about your product. If they see it, it's the world is getting on with their lives. You know, why are you suddenly going to tap someone on the shoulder and say, I need a little, little slice of your attention because I've got this special thing. And that's what I do in marketing is I'm trying to find someone's attention. I'm trying to say, oh, I know you're busy, but I've actually got something that I hope is genuinely of interest to you. And so you've got to make it of interest. You know, I think there are a lot of startups who unfortunately have very good products, but not good at marketing, who kind of build it and wait for it to come. And that will never happen. Um, 
And so I think, and, and just tie up a point I've made badly is, so I'm thinking about marketing and what I've tried to do with Fram is, so I think that one of the ways in, the world, in which the world has been affected in a bad way is, is marketing is very much about unreachable lifestyles. We can all have a yacht. We can all have perfect lives. We can all be perfectly healthy. We can all live to 120. We can all be beautiful. And it's not true. We're all going to die. People close to us are going to get horribly ill. You know, we're, we're, we're not perfect. Bits are going to fall off us. We all go through pain. We all cry sometimes. But that doesn't mean that we have to say that everything's a pile of shit because it isn't. Life is beautiful and there are beautiful moments. So why don't we con- call, talk about the real stuff that really matters, that's really special, and actually talk, talk about if you have a brand or you, you have a product which genuinely is doing something good, then that's your marketing. Unfortunately, if you have a brand that isn't very good or doesn't have a good product, or like a major sort of car company, where it's the same as every other car company, you create bullshit marketing, which is basically just stories about perfect-looking people. So what, what my obsession about marketing is, is to create something real. If you've got a great product and a real message which really matters, you really believe in it, talk about that. Don't make everything look slick, because that just makes people depressed, because they think that's real. Yeah, and I think it, you know you get into that. There's definitely a, a circular kind of conversation there that goes round and round because then you get into price spiraling, and you get into the whole point. Well, we'll drop our price a little bit. You know, you've seen that a lot, and it you know definitely started as marketing was coming up in the sixties and seventies and became more prolific when you could actually get a message out there that we are slightly cheaper than our competitor. We're basically the same products by us. But what happens is you go into this negative price spiral where <clears throat> somewhere along that line, somebody is gonna get fucked. Right. Whether it is the, some of the people putting the product together, whether they're in a sweat factory or something, so that the margins can stay the same because the company needs to, to survive. So they need to sell a certain amount of products so they can break even, but now they've dropped the price. They need to actually find and source that product cheaper so they can maintain that product. Mm. And you end up in this negative spiral and somewhere along that spiral, somebody's gonna get hurt. Mm. And that's what happens. And it's not the people sitting at the top of the company. Because by the time you've got to that point and you've got that much outreach, that, that's the problem. And I think that's, it's the juxtaposition of startups at one end and massive organizations at the other. And there is something in the middle where we can have some flex and, and meet. But you're absolutely right. And that is the thing about, about marketing, which at the moment is driving consumerism. Because there's a lot of people who live in their subconscious. They're, they're kind of lazy with their thought process. I don't want to, I'm probably going to get a lot of hate now from that. But the reality is a lot of people just, just sit and just don't really think about things. Yeah. They let the advertising in, they let it, they let it into their brains, and, and they go forward with that thought process. And the reality from that is that it drives this market and it becomes a, 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 a cyclic process. I think, unfortunately, as humans, quite often we believe what's written down or shown to us. And this is a major problem with social media and disinformation and, and also media which is now very biased. I, I grew up generally, you know, it felt like the media wasn't biased. You could generally, unless it was a tabloid, you could generally trust what you were reading. And, um, and now you've really, really got to have your radar on, you know, where's this coming from? What are the influences on that journalist? You know, like even the BBC now, it's like they've got to stay in hock with the government to make sure that they're not privatised. And, and so they, they're looking at the world differently and, you know, I don't know, it's like, who do I trust? And that creates paranoia. But I think um, that just, just going 
back a second because it's like when we talk on the phone. Yeah, so, yeah. Many, so many exactly. different things we can talk about, so many big subjects. But um, talking about essentially about pricing and margin and about how this. So, so what really, really gets my nerves? A very little sort of trolling against my nerves, and I sort of enjoy being ultra, ultra friendly with trolls these days. And they only troll about price. They go, "How much?" It's like don't buy it if you don't want it. Right. But the reason that a farm jacket's four hundred pounds, the utility jacket, for instance, four hundred pounds, it stays four hundred pounds, um, is that um, there's a whole lot of value and values built into that. So right across the scale, I know who's making that jacket. I know they're getting paid properly. I know that the fabrics I've bought, I mean, sourced properly, and they're getting paid properly. I know that I can afford to do proper customer service, that I can afford to back up my promises if something goes wrong, that, you know, you, you're not going to get any shit from me, that, you know, you, that everyone essentially along the system is doing their best to help the customer. So a £400 jacket isn't, as seems to be the case, a little jacket that's just been had an enormous margin put onto it because it's got a shiny brand. It's because that entire jacket has every aspect of it has been made in a better way, not just in terms of quality, but in terms of morality and in terms of its damage and not damage to the cycle of that production. And so I wrote um, a blog on a cycle motorcycle, Road TC, about five years ago. Um, probably if you Google it, it's still there, called 15 Points on Value. And it basically, I said, this is why my Volcom jacket is more expensive than others. And it's not just the quality, it's because you get the customer service, we sponsor a women's racing team and all these different things. Now, if, you, if you're not into that, just don't buy it. It's okay, it's okay. You're, you might buy a 30 quid little jacket, and I personally don't think that's it. Oh dear, because I don't think it's okay because, <laughs> as you say, somebody's getting stiffed. You can't make a thirty-pound jacket without stiffing someone. Right. It, it's just not possible. I know the economics of it, and it's certainly not going to be as high a quality. But, but I've also been unemployed. I've also come out of university without a job, you know, and and been on the dole. And I know that you can't always make 400 pound jackets and people sometimes feel like, they almost feel like I'm taking the piss, that I'm trying to, you know, say, oh, the jackets are only for rich people. And it's like, no, that's not true. You can go and buy a cheap jacket, it won't work as well. And that's, and that's no disservice. You know, it's not, what I'm trying to say is, it's, unfortunately, you don't get as good a jacket. And unfortunately, that is capitalism. We don't all get the same jackets. Um, but if you can afford to spend £400 on a jacket and you only buy that jacket once every five years, you will probably get better value than buying 10 jackets from a very cheap company. Um, it just depends whether you've got the cash flow to buy a £400 jacket. So I suppose all that is my sort of guilt justification for basically making expensive jackets. And I think it's a really interesting, that in itself is an interesting point, listening to you talk about that. Because from my perspective, I don't think that you even really need to justify it. So I'm listening to that and I, I don't think there's a justification case there. I, I understand that there's a lot of people out there going, oh, it's too expensive. But I think that the reality is, is that people are becoming more aware. The reason that I went for your jacket and, you know, it's still a lot of money for anybody. It, it doesn't matter whether you've made a lot or not. It, it's, it's still a lot of money. And I thought to myself, no, I really want that jacket. So what I do when I'm buying something is I make myself wait. 
So if somebody said to me once, mm-hmm. I haven't got a tattoo, but um, I was with my son and he was with a great surfer friend of mine who's got this big tattoo down their arm. And, and he said to him, he said, oh, that's an amazing tattoo. And he said, well, what I do is I draw a part of the tattoo. And if I still want that in two years time, then, then I'll get it. And it made me think, actually, that's a really good methodology. This was a couple of years ago for just life. Mm. So now what I do when I really want something, rather than just go, yeah, I'm going to buy it. And I'll, I'll whack it on a credit card and pay it off later or anything like that. And now what I do is I go, yeah, I really want that. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll save up for it. And when I can afford it, I'll then wait for two months. And if I still really want that product after two, those two months, then I know I really want it. You're really damaging my e-commerce strategy now because I want people to buy stuff straight away. It's um, <laughs> my, my, my business person. Don't, don't wait two months, get it now. I think you'll Before find, they run out. But I think you'll find that with <laughs> your brand, you'll have that deal flow. So just like, you know, for us as a fund, um, with tech, People look at it and they say, yeah, so, you know, your management charge is a little bit high or your terms are a bit high. And we're saying, well, no, we're not doing this so that we can flip a very quick return, like I was saying earlier, in three or five years. We're looking this for the next, you know, four or five decades or longer. We're looking at this for our great grandchildren. And so for us, it's the same kind of thing. We look at it and we say, well, if, if we're not right for you, don't worry about it. But because we've been doing that and we've been spreading that message, there's enough people who turn around and go, yeah, I want that. And we can have that lag. We can have that two-month lag. And by the time that's through, we've got enough people who are kind of doing that two-month wait and coming through. Mm. And you find that, or we do anyway, find that we get, it's, it's a more fulfilling sale. The thing you were saying earlier about, we, you, when I'm listening to you talk, it's all about passion. And the reason I think that's there is because of fulfillment. You don't feel like you're ripping anybody off. You do understand all the value that's going through the chain. And that's a deeply fulfilling thing for somebody to be able to sell that, whether it's whether you call it marketing or sales or advertising, anything that's going out to consumers. And it's interesting because I was having that conversation this morning with somebody and they're saying, I just can't really buy into the brand that I'm trying to sell. Mm. And they can't buy into it because they don't believe in it, because they don't believe in the values. Yeah. And when you buy into something, you buy into the values, other people are going to buy into that anyway. And so, yes, I might be ruining your e-commerce strategy for the next two months, <laughs> but I think you'll find it. No, no, you're fine. <laughs> it's, um, so it's funny because this is, again, the sales. Um, with, so so I, I've done lots of different jobs, and I ended up doing sales. And I started off as a wine merchant, ended up, I did this hardcore sales job, um, basically selling advertising space, magazines, media buying, buying, media selling. And yeah, it's the most hardcore, but I wanted the sales training because I was trying to get into uh, the creative world and I just thought it's a good con card and actually it worked in the end. Uh, It was the worst job I ever did. Um, You know, sat in a publishing house wearing a suit, even though I never actually met anyone because it was just phone calls. And people just screaming at me to sell stuff. And it was like a, it was like such a cliche. And I didn't think anyone wanted or needed this stuff that I was selling. It did not matter. I didn't believe in the people who employed me or I was working with. I felt really, really out of place. I just felt like it was a, it was a place that, that bad people went to stiff other people. And wow. I was desperate to get out. I mean, I, and because of that, and because I tend to think in, it's funny because I, I have quite, 
complex views about people and, con and concepts, but I, I tend to end up with quite a definite view of things because I, it simplifies life. I love that, I hate that. Um, and, um, and the, but I'm quite plastic if somebody can easily change my mind. But, well, so, so I was at this place and I, I just, it just really, really awful. I, I remember I used to go for extended toilet trips and sit in the toilet just so I didn't have to be there. Um, and after six months, I left and I'd done the sales training and I went on to uh, Getty Images, um, which was a much nicer place, and then got my media sort of experience and ended up, you know, working in the film industry, which was where I wanted to end up, and that's brilliant, and that's kind of where things really started happening for me. But, um, but, but what I found was in media, when I, I was essentially selling directors to ad agencies and music, video com and music companies for music videos, is when I, and it became very, very clear to me, when I worked with a director or a company I really believed in, I did really well. And when I didn't, it bombed. And I just thought, I, I'm, I'm clearly a passion player, you know, and my ability is that I really believe in what I'm doing. And when I do, I can sell things because people believe in it too, which is pretty obvious really. But at the time, I hadn't really understood that. But I actually can't sell. I can't, if you say, sell me that pen, I can't sell you that. Because I don't care about the pen. You know, if, uh, what's his name, the Wolf of Wall Street guy, you know, at the end he says, sell me a pen. I just look at him and go, no, but if you give me a bike, <laughs> I'll sell you a bike, because I like bikes. Time for a little break. I was thinking about this. I don't like bikes that much. I like cycling. Um, what I found as I get older is I found that bikes are inherently fairly boring things. Um, once you've seen quite a few bikes, they're much the same as each other, really. Um, and I think this is a task for the cycling world, is to make bikes more interesting, because inherently they're just sort of the same, really, and everyone talks about the same thing endlessly about carbon fibre and titanium. Um, anyway, uh, I think it's the pleasure of doing things which is important. I think that applies to a great many things, like watching films. What you play your film on doesn't really matter. Um, and what sort of plates you serve your food on doesn't really matter and I think this is about um, consumerism and then I'm thinking about jackets and the fact that oh okay does where, what jacket you wear really matter and that's why I have to make things that work because at the end of the day a pretty jacket actually matters to me whether that's actually important or not uh, is another question um, being a design monkey and if you're a design monkey you will believe that is true but jackets have to work first and foremost. So this is a working break. I'm going to shut up now and we'll play some music. I think that the world lacks passion. I think it goes back to what we talking about earlier about caring about the right stuff. Now caring about the right stuff doesn't have to just be the environment and the, the obvious stuff. And some people will call, will call it virtue signaling, which is a phrase I absolutely hate. Because why wouldn't you signal that you're nice? <laughs> anyway, it's um, uh, it's a little bit like sorry, I'm going to interrupt. Yeah, it's a little bit like the integrity test you have to do in finance markets. Okay, which, which makes me laugh a little bit because if you have to do a test in integrity <laughs> and you come out with the pass mark of seventy percent, what about the thirty percent where you're not integrity? Mm. You know, we're, we're, you know, and it just makes me laugh when when it's in you know where it's an employee kind of. Um, one to ones and stuff, you know, how is their integrity? And you're thinking, surely if their integrity isn't 10, then they really shouldn't be working with you. So, anyway, that was just the point I was thinking of. Blimey. 
Um, so what was, I, what was I trying to say? I think basically, I think that, so I, I have sort of defined the things that are important to me. And some of those things aren't purely beneficial is I love watching movies and I love riding my bike and me riding my bike isn't going to change the world and it doesn't benefit my children. I just like it. However, what I don't want to do is nasty stuff, the stuff that's stiffing other people. And frankly, the way we are at the moment, and potentially as an entrepreneur, I, I'm, I am still stiffing someone. I don't think we live in a perfect world simply because, I don't know, it means that somebody else isn't selling a jacket. And so you, you have to sort of compromise your morality to a degree. So this is a big philosophy. Is, you can't be perfect. I meet people who want to be perfect in every possible way. I'm not going to buy a product from that company because they do this. I'm not going to buy a product from that. I'm not going to walk down that street because that street was... And you go, you know what? You'll just be crippled. What you have to do is make sensible choices. You know, so for instance, so I don't think Richard Branton is all he cracked up to be because at the end of the day, um, you know, he's still flying an airline and airlines are terrible polluters of the world. However, I fly. So I've made a compromise. And you know, maybe Richard Branson's all right, but he could probably make a big difference to me. And I think what I'm getting to as I meander around in my tiny brain again, is that, is that what are the compromises we make and what are the compromises we don't make? What are the important things? You know, and I think what, what this relates to is with your fund, you want to fund ecologically sound progressive businesses is is sadly i think or, or or positively people are now looking up to brands instead of politicians and people and i find that really terrifying brands are businesses you know people look up to my brand and i think that's a wonderful thing but i go well at the end of the day i'm selling jackets i'm not changing the world but at the same time, progressively, what I'm hoping I'm doing is changing the dialogue about men being kinder, nicer people and about their mental health and about jackets having longevity and so we're not buying crap. And so maybe I'm making a tiny difference and I mustn't overplay that. And if you, if I'm putting words in your mouth, if you're funding a number of businesses in, in those different areas, you're slowly changing the landscape and I think you started with this at the beginning, so that we'd start consuming in a better way. Is that correct? Yeah, I think, I think there's, there's multiple things that we pull that apart. I think that uh, the thing on politicians and brands first, I, I think that brands should be something to look up to. And I think they should be something, I think, you know, I, I look up to your brand. I look up to your brand because I, I believe in the values that you're setting out. And I think, it, you know, to do that, to start a brand, to, to be an entrepreneur in its true format, you have to, you have to be brave. And, and it's the people who stand up there, who stand in front of everybody and say, no, these are my values. Yes, and we're going to be compromised, right? So Patagonia, they're, they're, they're amazing, but even they turn around and they say, yeah, we're not perfect, but we're trying. Yeah. We're trying to make it right. And I think that's great. And so I think people associate with brands because they buy into their values. And sometimes I think people... Uh, you can't, there isn't a choice because of economic circumstances. So they're pushed into choosing things because of economic circumstances. And like you were saying earlier, the other bit just pulling it apart is that about simplification. So you're saying you hate or love things. And, and 
that's, I don't think that's just you, I think that's just being a human being, because there's great thinkers that try and simplify it. It's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, mm. right? That is trying to take all of our ridiculously complex needs and make them really simplistic. But they are, it, there is some truth in that, that, that we need food and shelter, mm. that we need recognition from our peers. And if you look at that as humans, those are, those are truisms. We do, the reason we go out and buy flashcards is to have recognition because we do live in our egos hmm. a lot of the time. And so I think there's that, a lot of that. And, so, and then the talking about what we're trying to do with our brand is yes, we're trying to cause a ripple effect uh, of good, definitely. Part of our, our whole being is that we want to do good in the world. And you know, our tagline is make good. Um, the bigger effect we're trying to have is saying that actually, Profits aren't all bad, and eco doesn't have to be a composting toilet and wearing hemp. There, there is a point in the middle where actually consumers and mass market can buy into it because at the moment they're poles apart, and, and yeah. consumers just can't. Consumer behaviour has been proven that it doesn't change as rapidly as we need it to change. So we need to find innovation that can make massive change. And that's the idea of our fund, is that we want to find, we believe that early nascent start businesses in their beginning processes, the ideas, if we invest in enough of those, we will find one that maybe has the, has the kernel of an idea that can make a big enough change. Now, whether that's a new type of biodegradable substance that stops us having plastic bags, or it's a way that we can look at, um, fabrics or multiple different things that we're looking at at the moment and it's a really interesting landscape mm -hmm. but going back to that sales piece all the way back to that is that it makes me feel fulfilled mm -hmm. I feel like I can sit and talk about it and I feel good and I enjoy the research and I enjoy the whole part of it and I've, I want to make that something which my children are proud that their dad did and that's really what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do and I think you can legacy. I think it is legacy, and there's an interesting part, we read this thing yesterday actually, that when you talk about legacy, or when you think about legacy, you actually release endorphins. It actually makes you really? feel good. Hmm. And so, and I, a legacy is a kind of, maybe it's ego, but it's also unselfishness, is you're not going to be around to enjoy it. No. Um, I, I think that I, I used to see legacy as a sort of ego sort of led thing, particularly the religious, because you do believe that, you know, you're going to be, you're going to have another life or, you know, um, this isn't the end when you die. I, I'm a sort of science-based person that I believe that I'm just meat when I die. And so I don't care about what people think about me when I'm dead. I don't think. Maybe when I get older, I will. But at the same time, what I don't want to do is go, oh, all right, I'm off this earth, so fuck the rest of you. Um, you know, it, it, the whole thing can catch fire now, because I'm done. Because clearly, I've also got kids, so I care about them. But if I can have some sort of, if I can lie on my deathbed, and if I have that kind of death where I'm sort of staring at the ceiling going, well, have I done anything decent? You know, I'd like to think I have made a difference. Um, and that I could pop my clogs sort of going, well, hopefully I was on the right side of positive for that one, you know. Well, so one of our found, uh, founding partners with our, our fund, um, a guy called John Foden, um, um, came up with that. And actually, it could have been his, his, his business partner, uh, Chris, Chris Bell. What, one of those two, we had these great chats with those guys and we're, we're kind of coming up with ideas. But they summarised that in a really nice way is, 
we we should want to leave the world in a better place than we found it. Of course. Yeah. And at the moment, we're leaving it in a worse way. And I think that is really the interesting point where consumers as a whole, when I'm talking about consumers, I'm talking about mass market as a kind of thought process, mm. are starting to try, the, the dialogue is starting to change. And I think any point in history where the dialogue starts to change across multiple like swathes of society is where there's really interesting things happen. And, you know, if you take Martin Luther King, he had this great vision that, that racism could be solved. And I think that environmentalism or sustainability or longevity of the planet, because the planet's gonna be fine. It's humanity we're really worried about here. And that's our ego, our kind of society's ego worrying about humanity now. But Martin Luther King said, you've got to take that first step. We've got to make that first step, right? Because if we try and think about all the variables, mm. it's going to be too hard. Mm. There's too many variables to think about stopping racism. Yeah. And that, that was a really interesting point in history because there was huge amounts of people starting that conversation. And now it's been, you know, it, it, the whole idea of racism is toxic now. It still happens in small pockets, but what he did is, is changed the landscape. Well, it became right. socially unacceptable. Right. Even a racist will be apologetic about their racism. They won't outright, you know, use the N word they, they, because they know that it's wrong and they're embarrassed by it, even if they still believe it, which is certainly doesn't get rid of racism. And I don't know if we ever will, but at least now it's a bit like on a much smaller scale drink driving. As I can remember when drink driving was just a thing because I grew up in the countryside, you know, when I was a kid. And, and so did my wife and everyone sort of had five pints on a Friday night and drove the kids home, whatever. And, and now, for most people I know, drink driving is totally unacceptable. If you, if you try and get in your car after a bottle of wine at a, you know, when you have some friends around, somebody will put your hand, their hand on your shoulder and say, uh, no, I don't think so. Um, whereas it wouldn't have happened before. And I'm fascinated by these incremental changes. Yeah. You know, so I'm a marketeer, probably. I'm a product designer and marketeer. Those are my sort of skills. And I think, well, how can I improve the world? And I often think, like, I have a friend who works for Friends of the Earth. He's a director. And I, I, I said to him, I said, as a marketeer, how can I? I don't, I don't think that environmental groups have found that marketing goals that gets people bought in to, to it. I don't think that people don't care about the environment. But I think that generally... Maybe there needs to be something more positive, a more positive message rather than at the moment it's fear. And what happens with fear is people shut down. Right. Um, and I'm not saying that people shouldn't be caring, they shouldn't care, and they shouldn't be, you know, shitting it, you know. Yeah. But the problem is that what happens is I know that when my mum had cancer and I was scared she was going to die, I shut down. And because that was my defense mechanism. So that was on a large scale, on a small scale. And you just think, I can't handle all this information. You've got Brexit, you've got environmental decay, all this stuff. So, oh, fuck, I'm just going to watch Netflix. Um, whereas, if you feel like you're doing good and it's positive and it's part of a, I think the, um, the marches that have been going on in London over the last week. Um, and the blockades, they, they kind of have more positivity to them and people have got more involved, even though I don't know if it's sort of a middle ground that I don't, I don't know whether people can, can identify with them. But like David Attenborough, I think so many people can identify with them. I, I, I think, it's a, I think that it's just, there couldn't be a better point because that is exactly where we started with um, when we first started sitting down about 
um, TAC, um, and the fund's called TAC App. When we first started talking about it, part of the conversation around it was like, it's all just doom and gloom. Right. And, and we, as, as, as humanity, we've overcome huge crises through our history. Hmm. And I believe with positivity, we can overcome it if we unite. And that's what I'm excited about because I believe that as a social consciousness, right, we are starting to actually have that conversation. And that's what I think is exciting. Yes, there's still doom and gloom. Yes, there's all these bits. But that conversation has been happening since the 70s mm. and nobody's really taking notice of mm. it. And it's not now until we're actually starting to go, right, yeah, there are all these things that are really scary. Yeah, and we're losing animals and stuff. But actually, we can all make a positive change. And it, it, going back to the micro scale of just the human, you know, one yourself, like we're talking about good food and sleep. The reason I believe that that is a micro scale and the planet is a macro scale is because you can see it in yourself, right? That eating good food or food that's good for you um, is hard work. And so, so it's quite, it's easier just to give up and go, oh, do you know what, I'll just have a beer and then I'll eat a pizza and all that kind of stuff. But that conversation is becoming more and more prevalent now that actually, if you eat plant-based kind of food, if you have a more wholesome food, you're not having food which comes from animals that are pumped full of loads of chemicals and stuff, actually, you've got less chance of having these diseases that we're now starting to find out that come out, you know, mental diseases and stuff are caused by bad food. Well, I have a slightly different take, which is I believe that the best stuff always comes from hard work. And hard work can be defined in lots of different ways. So some of the great drivers for me as an entrepreneur is I want to feel that I have made the best of myself. I've, tr I've tried my hardest to see what I'm capable of. That's, mm -hmm. like, that's like the intrinsic marker for me about what I do is I hate the thought of wasting my life. I believe my, I'm not religious, but I believe, my, believe that my being alive is a gift and I should use it as best I can. And uh, that's my sort of philosophy. But also, the things I, I'm an ex racing cyclist, and I love I love cycling. And I don't I don't do racing anymore or ride really hard. But I love the, the feeling of having not stopped when I could have. I love the feeling of going to the gym and working really hard and walking out full of endorphins. Yeah. And, and all those feelings. I love the feeling of driving. Uh, somewhere far away and getting to a beautiful, beautiful place rather than not bothering, you know, and spending time with my son and teaching him maths because it gives him joy when he suddenly breaks through. And all these things are very easy not to do. Yeah. And, and so the best stuff, my, my relationship with my wife, you know, it, it, it's relationships aren't always easy. I've been with her for 23 years and we put an awful lot of work into that. You know, it sounds very unromantic, and sometimes it is romantic, and sometimes it's work, and it's trying really hard and biting your tongue. And I'm proud of having worked on that, and the fact that it's actually worked, because most of the time it doesn't, and sadly for most people. And I just think all this stuff is, is work. I think one of the reasons I work hard is because I believe that working hard is the, is the way I can gain happiness. Now, I took it a bit too far, <laughs> and then just worked really hard not necessarily with the right point in mind. But, um, but I think that, unfortunately, consumerism as it stands or has been is you can have it easy. It's all easy, easy as possible. And easy isn't necessarily good. Now, is there a way to find consumerism where it offers people easy solutions? Because we're busy at the end of the day. We've got a lot of stuff going on in our lives without being lazy. And I think there's a moral laziness 
and a laziness in consumerism which is damaging us. And I don't expect everyone to drag themselves through tar pits to do all this stuff. Because if we try and get people to do that, we're never, no, not going to succeed in changing the planet. But for instance, just preparing a meal, you know, I've n- I haven't eaten convenience. I work, me and my wife work really, really hard. We never eat convenience food because we've just found ways to cook sweet potatoes that's quick and, you know, it, you, know you, just, you just work it out. You get better at stuff because you put the effort in to cook decent food because we just hate eating shit. Um, and I just wonder, I suppose what I'm getting at in an embarrassing way, is actually we just need to pull our finger out sometimes? Hmm. I think, yeah, so... Controversial. I think all of that is, it's, there's a lot of things there. I think what you're summing up is the atypical cyclist entrepreneur, because it's why we both like cycling. It's why it's I why, didn't know you're a cyclist. Yeah, I love it. So it's why, you know, I'm not I'm not the right build, I'm not I think, but if you talk to my buddies, you know, I'm more right build than I am. I, I love <laughs> you know, I love going out and finding the steepest, most difficult hill because I enjoy the pain of chronic climate. Right. And and what you just described is to me is atypical of people I meet in cycling. Because they enjoy the pain of actually achieving something. Right. Um, whereas I also know of people who don't want to go through the pain, but they still want the satisfaction. And interestingly, a lot of those people, I would say, were the people who were more into um, banned substances at university. Okay, instant gratification, I guess. Instant gratification, right? Okay. right? And that's where we get to with fast food, with sugar, all these kind of things. And look, it, it's all really hard to give up. There's no judgment on any of it, but. I think what you're talking about in from your own perspective, and everybody views the world differently, is is atypical for a kind of cycling entrepreneur. Interesting. Uh, of course, I'm a cyclist long before I was an entrepreneur. I suddenly found that I created an, a cycling company that was where, just when everyone started cycling because you know it was the new sport that everyone loved doing, and, and so suddenly. You know, people assumed I'd taken up cycling because I was an entrepreneur, rather than I happened to be an entrepreneur who had been cycling. It's quite a weird thing. It meant it was quite funny because I've been on rides with investors and entrepreneurs. I was the guy who probably knew the most about cycling, but was also the fattest and slowest. So I would just keep my mouth shut because anything I said, it would be like, yeah, but you're really slow. <laughs> so it's like, um, but. Um, yeah, it's, it's funny. I, um, I think I, um, I, I've grown up with cycling as a, as a way of work. There's lots of I can go off on cycling, but I think cycling is one of those. I was thinking, I did a blog, which I don't think was particularly good on the weekend for Bra, and it was about, you know, what's most important. And um, I sort of gave three examples. And one was my son, pretty obvious family and um, one was cycling and that's my thing it's like the thing which connects probably most of my personality the thing that gives me like the thing i can go and get that gives me joy i can't go and get my kids and give, give me joy because sometimes they give me grief and you can't plan out that yeah, necessarily it's the with cycling i know if i get on a bike i will feel joy um that's my thing and then the other was jackets and i i was I didn't just write it down because I wanted to say something about jackets in my blog, it's because I realised that 
it's quite sad actually because I actually really fucking love jackets and I actually think it's a bit pathetic because jackets aren't going to change the world jackets are just nice things I don't know I don't know I think that actually possibly a jacket could change the world and that is the point I was making earlier is that incrementally gradually I think if we all go and do things that fulfil us and we start worrying about whether or not we're going to have the big house and we're going to have this kind of thing if we go and follow our passions because that's what our passion is I'd rather buy a jacket from somebody who was passionate about making a jacket rather than somebody who was passionate about making a million because what you're getting there is somebody's true passion they're actually fulfilling their life and that's a really beautiful thing uh, and it's, you know, it's like Anna Koska you were speaking about earlier when you look at her paintings you might like them or not like them but the, the fact is you, what you can't take away from them is that is her passion she sits and she looks at nature and that is her passion mm. when she paints those amazing fish. And so I think that it's, we're living in this slight dilemma that we, we all want instant gratification. We all want to be paid more. We all take less holiday because we're working harder to get the promotion, to get the bigger house, to get the car. And, it's kind of, and it comes right back to the beginning of our conversation. And it actually was interesting when we were chatting on the phone, we were also talking about wellness of... Um, of employees and, and your own kind of state of mind. And I think all of that is linked. Um, and interesting, that, that is, you know, what we base our investments on, is we base it on financial longevity, long, uh, longevity because we believe that you've got to be able to make profits to be accountable, to actually sustain your brand. Mm. Uh, we base it on, it's got to have innovation for climate change at its very core. And the third thing is we base it upon culture because we were talking about that people shouldn't be forced to work in this industrial age anymore from nine to five. They should be working around what is value and what they believe is value and coming to something where both the company and the employee are working towards value and fulfillment. And, and the symbiotic relationship is you feel good about what you're doing and if they feel good about what they're doing, they're actually going to be more productive. So you have a better business. Right. Um, and. and Going back to your entrepreneurial experience, because uh, you know we, we were laughing on the phone about how similar, uh, differently similar our experiences have been, and you know these ludicrous situations you get into as an entrepreneur. But you, you know one of them is that um, uh, I completely lost my thread. What are we talking about? I'm terrible. Entrepreneurism and where you're going in terms of, uh, I think. Both of us have been had similar different similarities in terms of what we've been talking about. I think in terms, I think where you're going on pushing, how hard you push yourself. Uh, yeah, the cost sorry. Of else. It, it's it's this obsession with um, uh, with working really hard. Um, and I oh yeah, so to so my point, God, I lost a bit of time. Is um, <laughs> is that. Maybe I'll edit it. I'm not supposed to edit this podcast. Is um, I this is case in point. I'm working rather hard the last couple of days. Is I I created a completely unsustainable lifestyle, um, which was that it was about an hour's culture. Hopefully not for my employees, but for myself. You know where I would just completely immerse myself in work seven days a week, and it was like a point of pride for me. I work extremely hard. I am totally committed. And, you know, I never ever had holidays and it's really, it's actually a really stupid way to, to live and to work in the end because, you know, we're all engines and we all have breaking points. Um, and actually I can't believe how far I managed to stretch my engine before it broke. 
Um, and it was really obvious I was going to have a breakdown looking back because, you know, the, the stress hormones I was running out of that amount of days and the, what I put myself through was absolutely insane. I couldn't believe it. You know, I was very almost annoyed with myself when I had a breakdown because I was like, I'm really positive and, you know, I'm really optimistic. It's like, well, <laughs> well breakdowns don't judge how positive or optimistic you are. If you, if you do the wrong things to your body, like breaking a leg, eventually it will snap, you know. I, I love that because I think we've probably got to both, both got to the same point in our lives that I, I, I definitely got to that point where I convinced myself that if, if I told myself that I was positive, right, then, then, then I'd be okay. Mm. And, and now I can almost spot people I think are going to have a breakdown because they're trying to convince themselves yeah. they're kind of, you know, they're, they're testing broken. too much. Yeah. And they're like, I've never been better. And all my friends, if they hear this, will <laughs> laugh at that because that's what I used to say. And people are like, how are you? I've never been better. And the re- reality was I was dying inside, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I've, and it wasn't that, I, I had an amazing job and, and I love the people I worked with. It's just that I'd got into this kind of cycle where I forgot what fun was. Yeah. I forgot what it was to have fun. And, mm my work became me and I was my work. Yeah. And yeah, you know, I don't know if I'm very interesting now, but I definitely wasn't very interesting then. <laughs> and, and that, that, and I think you can spot that. And I think if people are on that kind of train where they're going, you know, I, I couldn't be more positive. I'm the most positive person that like you were just saying. Right. That, that is, you're putting a mask on and trying to convince yourself of the hollow emptiness you have inside yourself where you're about <laughs> to snap. <laughs> Hopefully I'm not about to snap again. Doesn't feel like it. No, I don't think so. I, I, I feel like posit- positively lazy compared to the past, but yeah, I think yeah. it's, the other things I can remember is sort of experiences which were warning signs was so when I raised a million crowdfunding, um, I went to some cycling do at the design museum. Oh yeah, that's because one of my jackets was exhibited there and it was a do design museum and people coming up to me, I think what's you, what you're doing with Volpi is incredible and we look up to you and you're you know, the next week, you know, all this kind of stuff. And and I just felt dead. I just felt totally embarrassed by it. And I, I just wanted to run away. And none of it felt like a positive experience. You know, he told me at the beginning of this journey that I would get to that point and that people would be coming up to me saying, oh, I followed everything you've done. And, you know, I'd be like, wow, that's amazing, brilliant. And instead, I, 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 just, I just wanted to run away in tears and just think, oh my God, this is awful. You know, people even take selfies with me. And it's this kind of, I just felt completely disconnected from what was happening. And, and actually what was happening was I just felt like I just needed to do the next thing all the time because I never enjoyed anything that went well. Um, so, oh, okay, we've raised a million. Shit, now we've got to make it work. Um, okay, we've just got this article in the Guardian. Oh, shit, now I have to get an article in Sunday Times. And it was this constant cycle of going for the next thing, the next yes. thing, never, never celebrating. And I realized now I never celebrated with my staff either, which is I feel terribly guilty about. Is actually going, you know what, guys, what have fucking done? That's brilliant. You've done incredibly well. We should stop and have the afternoon off and chill out. And instead, I was like, oh, we've got three hours before the end of the day. Let's do more, do more stuff. <laughs> right. It's like, Jesus Christ. It must have been insufferable, you know. But it was just obsession. It was literally, it really was obsession. People used to say I was obsessed and I didn't recognize it um, because I thought this was how it had to be. Yeah, and it's because you become part of that. And so, you know, if anybody um, has got to this point, they're still listening. Um, thanks very much. I think that you, <laughs> the, the book you should read is a book by a guy called Eckhart Tolle, okay. uh, which is called um, A New Earth or A New World. I'm just going to check it. Because uh, it's called A New Earth, 
and it's a very interesting book. It's 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 quite full on, and your ego will definitely protest when you're reading it. But it talks about why we live in our ego, right? And it's a really interesting read. It's a good audiobook as well. Um, but definitely, if you want to live in the presence, if you want to kind of understand more about why we play these games with ourselves, it's an amazing book. It's very it's a very beautiful book. And, and he does state at the beginning that you might not be ready for it. Um, your ego might fight you as you're listening to it. <laughs> uh, but definitely very good. Cool. And something I've been meaning to ask is, so have you, did you have an epiphany which meant that you started this fund for these particular reasons? Was there a particular yes. changing moment in your life? Yes. Okay, do you mind? Yeah, no, not at all. So I, I had um, I'd basically been walking in the, in the kind of wilderness um, after I left um, Jaila Industries Group, which wonderful company, brilliant to work with one of my, my best mates uh, for, for 10 years. Um, and I left there um, to kind of do my own thing. And I, and I did consulting, which as you know, um, it sounds brilliant on paper and it's quite soul destroying. Um, uh, it, it was for me, I think the, the lack of accountability, uh, lots of different things, it, it, it didn't quite work for me. Um, so I was doing that and I, and I ended up and I was surfing and I had this amazing surf trip and I was looking at this, this beautiful island that we were surfing off and I was sitting there going, I just don't, this isn't going to be here in 50 years if we carry on the way we are. And around the back of the island, there was all this plastic rubbish. And I was looking at it and I said, we're just leaving the world in a really crap way. And it wasn't so much about the doom and gloom. It was more about, hang on, I think there's just a different way we can work. There's a, way, a different way I can work. And I also think there's a way that with the experiences that I've had that I can add back and help and help other startups that are now coming up and coming through that and connect them with, with big brands that actually want to invest down in that too, because there's a lot of big brands that want to play in that space too. So, so we en ended up being a bit of a connector and, and that's what happened six months ago and it's been an incredible ride so far of starting it. It's got meet some amazing people uh, like yourself. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's just, it's a really wonderful thing that I'm, I'm really passionate and love doing at the moment. Cool. Um, well, thank you very much. It was a really good sort of in-depth philosophical chat about yeah, business and, and the world. Um, and um, because I need to keep this podcast within a sort of tolerable length, I'm going to stop. Otherwise, I just carry on. Really. Yeah, you also have to do it on the bike. Um, yeah, and um, we'll go and have a coffee downstairs rather than sitting in a, in a yoga studio <laughs> like a couple of weirdos. <laughs> um, thank you very much. Thanks, Nick. Cheers. Well, thank you very much to Jim. He was great. And no thanks to me for talking too much as usual, but it isn't an interview, it is a chinwag, so I'll give myself that. Uh, if you would like to find out more about Fram Jacket, we're on framjacket.com or Fram Jacket on Twitter, but nobody uses Twitter anymore, or Fram Jacket on Instagram, which is a much nicer place. You'll have picked that one up from previous podcasts. Um, I'd like to thank David Roger for sorting out the sound and cutting things together really kind of you but don't forget we never edit these um and um you can also see jim edmondson's uh, uh investment site at tacap t-a-k-c-a-p if you're up for investment and you have if you have a uh, environmentally friendly company um and 
I will also put all this info into the bio on the podcast. Um, thank you very much for listening. Next week, we have uh, Tom Southam. He's a cyclist, but we don't always talk about cycling. Bye. Bye.